Good morning, everybody. I am also Lisa. As someone pointed out, this is the rare Sunday we have more Lisas than Johns. <laughs> uh, speaking of, John Remusnitter is still out taking care of his family, and he thanks you for the time away, and you'll see him next Sunday. Um, but in the meantime, it's good to be with you all. Uh, I want you in your mind to finish the sentence, I love, and then I'm wondering if a few people will shout out the first word that popped in your mind, and be honest. Coffee? Pizza? Hey, that was mine too. What's that? Sunshine. Sunshine. One more I heard back here? The beach. The beach. Wow. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Also, I love that nobody named a person. I'm not alone. I feel so (laughs) validated because I was a little embarrassed to admit that pizza was the first word that popped into my head when I thought about this. And I was like, okay, also my husband and my kids. Um, and lots of other people. Um, So it's a familiar concept that it can be a little bit silly in English that we use love, you know, the same word love for pizza or books or the beach or our family or our friends or our loved ones. And obviously, the way that I love pizza is different than the way that I love my kids. And there's even more nuances to this, right? Even with, across relationships, the way that I love my kids is different than the way I love my husband, different than the way I love my friends, different than the way I love strangers or people in the community that I come into contact with. So we need context to know what exactly we mean by love when we say that phrase. And yet to love is the most central command in both the Old and New Testament, the commandment to love God and to love others. And so in order to more fully understand some of these key words in that central command, we're in week two of a three-week mini-series, diving deep into the key words of what is known as the Shema prayer, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, and it's named for the first word of those verses. And those words are, here or in Hebrew, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then in the Gospels, Jesus upholds this as the greatest command with the clarification or expansion, however you want to kind of nuance that, that to love the Lord your God is also to love your neighbor as yourself, something that he quotes from Leviticus. So these are the words that for Jews and Christians alike, both from Moses to Jesus, we are instructed to keep these at the center of our lives, our homes, our communities. And as we heard, if you were here last week, to shema or to hear, in Hebrew, also means to respond, to obey, to do and live out the words that you hear, not simply to listen. So if these are the words that we are to fully live central to our daily lives, the question for this morning is what exactly did they mean by love? And what does it mean to love with all of your heart? So that's what we're digging into today. Now in ancient Hebrew, there are actually two words for love, uh, though they have a lot of overlap, and these words are chesed, the one where you've got to get a little phlegm going, uh, and ahava. So in the Hebrew scriptures, or what we often refer to as the Old Testament, chesed, I'm not going to do the thing every time, I'm just not good at it, is the most frequent noun for love, and it's often translated as a loyal love, or a loving kindness, or an everlasting love. This is often a reference to God and Israel's covenant love to one another although it gets used in other ways too. It gets used over 250 times, so it gets used in a lot of contexts. And ahava is the most frequent verb for love, and it's used over 200 times and generally means like a compassionate, affectionate love. And the word 
love found in both Deuteronomy 6, where it says, love the Lord your God, and in Leviticus, where Jesus pulled love your neighbor, are both ahava, that verb to love. So throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God's love is described very frequently as both hesed and ahava. And with both words, consistently, God's love is unchanging. It is eternal. It is a fact and truth of his very being. It's not something that is earned by the people. It does not waver. It is as eternal as God's own self. To say God is loving is like saying that liquid is wet. It is a fact of its very being. Just as God's love is an unchanging reality, it is an inherent characteristic, it is as obvious and intertwined in who God is as saying that the water in my water bottle is wet. And so time and again in Deuteronomy, Moses reiterates this to the people. He says that God loves the Israelites not because of anything that they did, but simply because he is God, because love is who he is and how he acts. So for example, in Deuteronomy 7, shortly after the Shema, he says this in verse 7 to 8. Yahweh, or the Lord, loved you and chose you not because of your great number, exceeding all other peoples, for you are fewer than all of the peoples, but because of the love of Yahweh for you, and because of his keeping of the sworn oath that he swore to your ancestors, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so Moses is saying to the Israelites that God Ahavad, not because of something you did or because of some way that you are impressive, but simply because of his love for you, because of his loyal love and commitment to you and your ancestors. And what that kind of love looks like in action is as powerful and tangible as freeing them from slavery. And so this is not just a compassionate, affectionate feeling. Again, Ahava was mostly used as a verb, so it is active. This is a love that seeks, that initiates, that protects, that responds with compassion, and is a powerful love, enough to deliver them from the Pharaoh. And so to receive God's love is to be loved fully, eternally, unconditionally, and actively. And the command then is to ahava in the same way. And so often when we receive love, it's natural to want to reciprocate that love and to pass it on. We experience this in our everyday relationships. As just a very small example of this, over the last few years, I developed a close friendship with a coworker of mine. She lives in Chicago. So being coworkers in COVID times, we didn't actually meet for like a year and a half into being friends. And I distinctly remember the first time we got to meet in person, she came bearing gifts. Uh, for me and for my kids, who, of course, she has never met. And I'm not usually a big gifts person, uh, but I was so touched that she just wanted to tangibly show her love for me and how excited she was to see me and meet me in person. And so then that kind of prompted me to start seeing and paying more attention to ways that I could, in turn, encourage and affirm her in the way that she felt loved. And each time one of us would kind of encourage each other or love one another or send each other a gift or, you know, an actual card in the mail, it deepened and perpetuated this cycle of loving each other, including loving each other's kids, even though we've never met each other's kids. But it's because we care about who and what our friend cares about. And in a much deeper, more fundamental way, God first loves us 
with an eternal and unconditional love. And as we experience that love and return it, we recognize that love by loving him and others. And so to love God fully also means to love who and what God cares about. It is to love in the way that God loves, to pass on that which we have received. And Moses goes on to explain this in his message to the Israelites too, to explain what it looks like to love the God who has first loved us. In Deuteronomy 10, as his sermon continues, we can pick up in verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There's that phrase again. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. He goes on in the next few verses to remind them why they should commit themselves in this way. Who God is, what he cares about. And verses 18 and 19 more clearly spell out what it means to walk in his ways. Moses says, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, because God is a God who sees and cares for the most vulnerable in their society, that's who he's naming, to love God is to love them. And to love them the way that God loves them, which is through active care and compassion, tangible provision and justice. To love God is to care for who and what God loves. And Deuteronomy 10 are some of the prime examples that we see throughout all of Scripture defending the cause of the most marginalized and vulnerable in their society, loving and welcoming the stranger, and providing tangible needs like food and clothing for those who are without. This is the love of God, and this is what we are to live out, to display with all our heart. So then, you know the next question. What did they mean by heart? Now, aside from the little organ literal organ. In English, we also use heart, usually, to refer to our emotions or feelings. So unlike when I said, I love pizza, if I had given you the phrase, I love with all my heart, I probably would have gone straight to my loved ones. I love with all my heart evokes scenes from musicals or romantic movies or Valentine's Day cards. And that's certainly not to say that it's only romantic love, but it is a reference to strong emotions in the way that we would usually use it. And in English, we distinguish those emotions or feelings from our thoughts. It is very common, not only in our language, but in our cultural understanding, the way we use our language, to separate thoughts from emotions or the mind from the heart. From personality tests that will categorize you as mostly a thinker or a feeler, or as someone who operates out of your head or your heart or your gut, to the way that we talk about making decisions rationally, which might be in contrast to making a decision with your heart. We often compartmentalize the heart as our emotions and feelings, which we colloquially, colloquially consider totally separate from our thoughts and our mind. And that compartmentalization, that separation of heart and mind, big picture, actually traces all the way back to ancient Greece. 
So generally speaking, we have Plato and Aristotle and their other ancient Greek philosopher contemporaries to thank for that idea of separating the physical from the spiritual. And in their language, spiritual meant immaterial, things like thoughts and ideas, really what we would now refer to as the mind, more than um, what we necessarily call spiritual. So they were the leading thinkers in the 3rd and 4th century B.C., which is important because that means it was a few hundred years before Jesus and the New Testament authors, who lived in that same culture and that same part of the world. And we actually see an example of this Greek influence, of this kind of dualism, by the fact that when Jesus reiterates the Shema in the Gospels as the greatest commandment, we now have this added phrase in our Bibles that says, love God also with all your mind. That's not in Deuteronomy, but it is in all of the Gospels. And I have to wonder if that's because that was a more recent historical development in how they thought of the self. And so that addition, even just of that little phrase, as different from Deuteronomy, shows that the Greek language and worldview was already pervasive, and that was something that the New Testament authors and audience needed to speak to. But that obviously wasn't just ancient history, that way of thinking was only in ancient Greece 2,300 years ago, but it has continued to evolve and be pervasive throughout Western history and culture. And in many ways, the dualism reached new heights during the quote-unquote age of reason in Western Europe in the 16th to 18th centuries, just a couple hundred years ago. And as you can imagine by the name Age of Reason, uh, Western cultures began not only separating physical and spiritual or emotional and rational, but putting them on an even more stark hierarchy. This was already true in ancient Greece, but they took it to new levels where the mind is at the top, The mind is the ultimate. Thoughts, I think, therefore I am, was the pinnacle of this, right? That I am my thoughts. And the heart and emotions were kind of seen as unreliable, but they were kind of a ride-along that should take a way back seat to our rational thoughts. And then the body, or the physical realm, was kind of seen as this unfortunate vehicle. It's just the vessel for thoughts, and it should be tamed and subdued and ultimately discarded. Now, that's a very simplified overview of about 2,000-plus years of philosophy. (laughs) But, (laughs) But the point is that now, in the 21st century, in a very much steeped Western culture, for many of us, it is like the air we breathe to think of ourselves this way. Right? It is such common language to talk about whether we're a thinker or a feeler, or, well, my mind is saying this, but my heart is saying this. And that has its place, it has its utility, I'm not saying that. But this is very much the way we think. Unless you were raised in a different culture that is not Western, or many of us have begun intentionally seeking out a more integrated way, um, learning other philosophies. And I offer this lesson because, while it might sound obvious, sometimes we forget that this is not how all cultures think, and nor has it been how people have always understood themselves. Including, most importantly for today, this is not how the Israelites thought about themselves or the world. So as we go back to the Deuteronomy, as we go back to the Shema, as we go back to the framework that Jesus himself would have been taught, even as he was living amidst the Romans, this kind of dualism and separation within ourselves would have made no sense 
to the ancient Hebrews. It would have been incomprehensible to the authors to try to separate our mind from our heart. So in contrast to our English, or really our Greek, understanding of heart, in Hebrew, the heart means the entirety of one's internal world or being. We can see this visually thanks to the Bible Project, which we're not going to watch their video today, but you're welcome to go watch it later. And so in Hebrew, the heart does have feelings and emotions. It is where we feel things like love and affection, as well as more negative things like jealousy or anger and so forth. But it is also our thoughts. The heart was also the place where understanding and reasoning would occur. It's also kind of relatedly to our thoughts and our emotions, the places where we make choices, the place where our will and our reasoning and what guides our actions is found. And, like English, it meant the literal physical organ within the body. When someone's heart stopped, that was still something that they would refer to. So for the sake of our time this morning, I'm not going to run through the myriad of verses that illustrate how it's used in all these ways because the word heart or lev is used in nearly 600 different verses. Um, But if you're curious, I do encourage you to go watch the Bible Project video on uh, heart, which is where this came from. But all that said, one of the more well-known Proverbs does kind of sum up this image nicely. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or as another translation puts it, from it flows your whole life. So to love God and love others with all your heart is to love with your whole being, your whole self, with your thoughts, your emotions, your choices, your understanding, your very physical being. We're going to get more into that idea of your physical being next week, actually when we talk about soul, or nefesh, so stay tuned, come back for more. Uh, But the idea is that suffice to say, the heart is your whole self. And Jesus illustrates this understanding of the heart in one of his challenging teachings and his warnings offered in Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, or of the Jewish law, I should say, are once again asking Jesus, why are you and your followers not following this strict protocol that we observe? And in this case, it was around the laws and rituals for food and eating, which was a really big deal. And Jesus responds by essentially calling out all the ways that he says, you've twisted the laws, and you're not actually honoring God, and you're missing what it really means. And he concludes by saying, what goes into a person doesn't defile them, but rather what comes out of them. And as often happens, the disciples don't quite know what he's talking about, and so they ask for an explanation which is where we're going to pick this up in Mark 7, 17. So after Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable, the response he had just given the Pharisees. Are you so dull, he asked. <laughs> I kind of love that. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So notice already that Jesus said what comes out of a person's heart and their thoughts. So already he's putting those two together. But if you consider this list of evils, they reflect an inseparable combination of emotions, thoughts, choices, and physical ramifications. Just take the first few, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. These are all clearly wrongs that are intricately connected to how we feel about ourselves and someone else, how we are thinking about them and ourselves, a choice that we have made, and it affects the physical body of both the person committing the wrong and the person it is committed against. These are holistic wrongs, and they come out of the heart. This then, I think it's pretty safe to say, is the opposite of what it means to love God and others with all our heart, to love with our affections and our compassion, to love with our thoughts and understanding, to love with our choices and actions, to love with the way that we physically move about in the world. And all of this, Jesus says, flows from your heart, what flows from your whole self. And that, he says, is what I really care about. What is coming out of you? What is coming out of your heart? What is coming out of who you are? And so if the list in Mark 7 is a pretty good picture of what it looks like to have an unclean heart or what it looks like not to love God with your heart, what does it look like? And the first real-life example I thought of is a dear friend and former youth leader, Mary Feibusch. I'm going to do my best to get through this because sadly Mary passed away last August from cancer. But she loved God and others with all her heart until her last days. Now, I primarily got to see this in action when we did youth ministry together. She was a youth leader for over 15 years. And for Mary, it wasn't just about showing up faithfully to youth group and to events every single week, which she did. But she also intentionally sought out the most vulnerable, the ones who are most likely to fall between the cracks, the ones who had hard things going on at home that most people didn't see. She would do whatever she could to seek them out and to love them. She would pick them up and drive them to make sure they could come to youth group. She would give them her phone number so that they could text her at any hour, and she really meant any hour. She would take them out to frozen yogurt or to movies so that they could feel seen and loved and special. And to me, she seemed endlessly patient. Now, it wasn't actually endless, but on so many of our longer weekends or weekend trips, I would hit a point where I felt like I was losing my mind. And I would vent, and I would turn to Mary, who would just laugh, and it seemed like she had so much grace and patience. Her well ran so deep. Even recently, during Shelter in Place a few years ago, she gave so much of her time and her money and personal resources, preparing herself unique materials for an activity for, of the youth group kids to do on Zoom in our own homes, week after week after week. For months she did this, preparing an art project or an activity or a craft or something so that we could feel like we were together even as we were apart. But she didn't just love the highway students. She was also 
frequently the one who would lead the way in helping us serve and care for the most vulnerable in our society. She was our fiercest advocate for the event, the 30-Hour Famine, an event in which we would learn about and align ourselves with the many in the world who are poor and hungry. And we would spend our weekend fasting and learning and serving locally together. She would lead efforts with the students to help the unhoused and teach our students about some of the realities of living on the streets with a deep empathy and compassion as she had known people who had experienced this. And the testimony of dozens of people who were at her celebration of life would affirm that Mary loved deeply and served this compassionately in every aspect of her life. It was not unique to those of us here at Highway. And she was unapologetically, unequivocally doing all of this because she felt so seen and loved by God. And she wanted students to know that love for themselves too. Even while she was sick and battling cancer, throughout which she never stopped being a youth group volunteer, she mostly kept her struggles quiet, um, always there to love others and not make it about herself. She would probably hate that I was talking about her this much if she was here. Um, but the exception was she would talk about it when she had words of hope, when she wanted to share a way that she was seeing God amidst her cancer journey. She loved telling the students about God's faithfulness and his goodness. I'm not saying she was perfect. She was human, like the rest of us. But I can confidently say, Mary loved God and others with her whole heart. With her words, with her affections, with her actions, with her choices, with her whole being, what flowed from her heart, what flowed from her whole self was God's love in action until her very last days. This morning, I'm going to ask each of us to honestly consider what is flowing out of our hearts. To honestly consider how are or aren't we receiving reciprocating and extending the active and compassionate love of God? How are or aren't we doing this with all of our hearts, with all of who we are? This morning, I'm going to invite us to really sit with those questions, and the prayer of examine is a wonderful way to do just that. The examine is a prayer that looks back on the day intentionally inviting the Holy Spirit to guide our reflection and our memory and to see where we were in tune with God's presence and the opportunities to love him and others and where perhaps we missed it, where we were misaligned with God or missed opportunities to love others. There are actually a lot of ways to nuance this prayer practice, but this morning I'm going to guide us through a few minutes to do so through the lens of love. And so I'm going to invite you to consider the last day or so since we're doing it in the morning. And with God's guidance, we're going to reflect on where we have received, extended, or missed the love of God and the chance to love others. So we're going to take a few minutes, and I invite you to begin by settling into the space in whatever way works for you to pray. 
You're welcome to close your eyes and just take a few moments. Some find it helpful to pay attention just to your breath as it goes in and out as a way to center yourself in this moment and quiet your thoughts. And so I invite you to prepare yourselves for this time of reflection. As you do so, take a moment to invite the Holy Spirit into this time and ask him to help you notice what God would have you notice. Help you linger on some moments and skip over others. So now I'm going to invite you to begin reflecting on the events of the last day or so with this lens of looking for love. Consider perhaps the words that you said or didn't speak. Consider emotions that you had throughout the day. Choices you made, big and small. And interactions you had with others, as well as times you were alone. As you review your day, ask the Spirit to show you. Where do you notice the love of God at work? How did you experience God's love, including through others? How did you actively love God and others in the movements of your day? And where did you miss signs of God's loving presence? And where did you fall short or miss the opportunity to love? Take some time to review this with the Holy Spirit.
As you continue to hold that review in your mind, take a moment to express gratitude for the moments of God's love, as well as asking forgiveness for the moments of shortcoming. Feel free to continue this review as long as you like. And whenever you're ready to close by praying for the rest of this day or perhaps tomorrow, asking for whatever it is you need to love God and to love others with all your heart.